a culture in, in any organization whether that's sport or the business has to has to evolve it can't stay stagnant it all stems back for me that everyone needs to be okay with being wrong hello and welcome to the track record podcast what does it take to win each episode we talk to leading performers in sport and business to unearth what it's taken them to win and what they will be doing in the future to continue to win and today we've got a couple of uh, cracking guests Catherine, who have we got today we have john schofield and uh, dan shellard and john is a british olympian who partnered with liam heath in the men's kayak double 200 meter sprint event and those guys won a bronze at the 2012 olympics and a silver in rio at 2016 John's had a really long career in high performance sport and he has combined it with an interest in academics um, and a background in applied physiology and biomechanics. After he retired from sport in May 2019, he's taken on the role as head of performance with Scottish Canoeing and is currently working in this role trying to nurture the sporting talent of the future. Dan is the CEO and founder of Fit TV, the number one rated fitness app that gives access to the most in-demand personal trainers. Their mission is to make exercise a habit for everybody. Dan founded Fit in 2017, backed by leading investors after a career at Google and CEO of, and founder of Qubit. Right. So we're in good company then. Um, so it'd be great just to kind of open up without deliberately widened a vague question. But it'd be fascinating to hear from you guys. Like what? How would you describe uh, a winning environment? And perhaps give us a couple of examples of a winning environment you've been uh, part of. Uh, Johnny, can you kick us off? Sure. I mean, it's, it's, it's a great question. I think um, one of the keys around it is going to be defining what, what winning is, kind of both to to yourself, but also kind of more, more generically. So uh, mm. it, it can be easy in sport. We've got podiums and one, two, three, you've won a medal below that. Um, you kind of, kind of just off and you've not won anything. So it can both be easy to define, but also a little bit misleading. And I think we can maybe, maybe touch on that um, a little bit later. Cause I think it does change how, how a team works. Um, from my point of view, though, the, the team that I guess I was part of for the for the longest period of my career that was, uh, you know, achieving medal success regularly, um, kind of at international level, was as part of the 200-metre squad within, within British Canoeing. So we trained together um, from about 2009 through to 2016. Um, and for me, I'm just going to throw one thing out there. It was the key to that, that winning team, and it was uh, change the, the whole team was pretty much constantly looking for something to change, always on the assumption that there was something there that we um, were essentially doing wrong, something that we could be could be doing better, and we were looking for that. But we were also never changing too much at, at one point in time. So from my point of view, that was that's just the biggest thing that stands out, that we had a culture that was, was ready to accept change. So it let us not just win once, actually sustain that over over a long period of time oh there's so much to dig in before we do dan i'd love to hear uh your equivalent of winning environments yeah i think i think i think johnny's correct when we're kind of questioning the, the definition of what winning means um you clearly in the business world there's the the financial performance and the return you give to your shareholders is is one way of looking at winning and then the other way of looking at winning is you know 
being happy at work and um and being really passionate about the mission that you're you're working towards i think for me i was really lucky that my first you know, proper job out of university was at google um i i joined it in 2005 so it was a it was a public company but it still kind of had i was probably there when there's a transition between startup and growing up into a bit more of a corporate organization mm-hmm. um and i guess what they did really well to foster uh an, an environment of, of winning both i mean obviously they had incredible financial performance but also the, you know, the culture within, within the business was all around anything is possible you know i joined at the most junior level I, I could i was literally right at the bottom but i always felt that my voice was heard i always felt that i could i could um put forward ideas to senior management and ultimately that gave me the confidence by the age of 27 to leave and set my own business up because of you know they 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 really fostered an environment of creativity and ultimately becoming a mini entrepreneur within what was you know a, a few thousand person organization Johnny, I'd, I'd be really interested to, to hear from you in terms of those changes, even the small changes that you mentioned to, to create that kind of sustainable environment. What gave you the confidence to make those changes? I guess it was um, it was it was a culture coming from the leader within the team. So mm. it's interesting to hear Dan kind of said even within. Uh, you know, Google was still be a big organization at that time that he still had a, a connection to um, to the leadership and that them allowing him kind of freedom to to be creative and to speak up really mm. obviously fostered um, the skill set that you then have taken elsewhere since. And it was it was the same for us. Basically, our leader within that situation was essentially the coach, um, although it yeah. was a much more kind of equal relationship than, than that does justice but he was essentially setting the, the tone and the plan of what we're doing mm-hmm. and he just say it straight straight up he'd be saying we need to we need to figure out what we're doing wrong now we need to assume that we need to be even better last year than this so we need to start looking at those places so once that leadership tone was set, it was quite easy for that to be something the team team did. I think it's really interesting. We talk about a lot at, at Fit um, about. I mean, culture is the number one thing that ultimately drives drives our performance. But it setting that culture is is one thing. The other, I mean, you know, they're they're essentially you kind of define and put words on the paper. But really, culture is how you act, and. A, you know, ninety percent of that culture comes from the way that your leaders act, and if if they aren't setting the right tone and if they aren't adhering to these kind of principles that you're trying to put in place, then it will will fall flat. I mean, from the most simple things. I mean, a great example for us at Fit is you know, we talk a lot about um, being being disciplined, and even though you're a startup and you know things are really unknown, you have to have uh, sh- strong discipline in the company. And we noticed that you know quite early on that. You know, one of the most basic disciplines in the business world is turning up to meetings on time, and uh, it, it got really sloppy around the, around the business where your know, meetings were signed 10, 15 minutes late, and you accumulate all of that time. And when you're a startup, that they, that that is super super valuable time that you can't afford to be wasting. And it really, mm. you look at the management team. There was a couple of people that were sloppy with their their management timekeeping. So we put something quite simple in place, which is. Um, 
uh, you know, a fining system just for the management meeting. If they ever showed up late to our management meetings and they got fined. Uh, and it's amazing how quickly that that um, <laughs> that behaviour changed. I mean, that money obviously went then went to we put it forward to charities. Um, but it's it it it's about stamping that out at the leadership level. If you don't do it at the leadership level, you cannot expect the rest of your company to to follow. Ultimately, the lead the leaderships need to behave in the right way. You want your culture to to evolve. I guess an interesting observation that ties those two things together. So I work with Johnny um, as part of, I guess, his team from 2010. And Johnny, my observation of that was, although the coach was setting the culture, I think as athletes, you were also leaders within that team and, and strongly influencing him. So there was a kind of symbiotic leadership and influence that you had on each other in order to all progress and become better would that be your reflection on it and 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 if so have you have you taken that on at all in the way that you're doing things now absolutely and it's it was very much um kind of a, a, a circular process i guess so he he would be leading but he'd be presenting something we'd be kind of looking through it and there'd be feedback going, going straight back in. So it was, it was the constant loop where our voices um, were kind of really sort of valid within that process. Um, and it's, it's often not the case in, um, in kind of my world of high-performance sport where it's often um, coach-athlete relationships is a, a kind of term that's used a lot and mm. it's a bit tricky because that already separates you into two distinct um, camps and the uh, the status quo that the thing that we see the most most often is really the, the coach more in the role of teacher and the athlete more in the role of pupil so even though I talked about you know having a, a strong leader within there it was more like having a leader within a team of um, people that are kind of on, on an equal footing with what they do. It's just that you need to have some kind of organisation, some kind of structure to it. So it was um, a nice sort of horizontal kind of kind of relationship um, with with strong leadership, but very much kind of avoiding that. Um, teacher pupil kind of framing mm. where there was any chance that the athletes wouldn't be empowered to really feed in what, what they know and I, I'm guessing that there must be cases in your business Dan where you're not necessarily at the at the forefront of things anymore so you need to listen to people who are out there and it's exactly the same for a coach needs to know what the athlete's feeling within a race or a training session because they, yeah. they're not doing it themselves a hundred percent I mean I think I think there's there's a kind of a difference between you know, the, the the point I was trying to make is the leaders need to set set that you cannot expect your employees to you know, when you set your kind of guiding principles of how you want to act and behave as a company if the leaders aren't doing it then the rest of the the, the team um, won't be doing it but that doesn't mean that the rest of the team can't feed back up to leaders and how they wish that culture to evolve you know a culture mm-hmm. in, in any organisation whether that's you know, sport or the business has to has to evolve it can't stay stagnant. And to your some of your earlier points, Johnny, um, and then, you know, we we look at some of our um, our core values of our business. And the first one is be a leader. Like every single person needs to take ownership and accountability. And we always talk about you know if you hire the smartest 
smartest people, you shouldn't be telling them what to do. You know, you hired smart people for them to tell you what to be doing so you can do your job as a leader better. And I think that is definitely something I transitioned across from the Google days, which, as I mentioned at the start, it's, it's about no matter where your position in the organization, that um, as long as your ideas are, are you know, founded on, on good, solid evidence and data, that anyone can be heard. If it's if someone's opinion just saying, oh, yeah, I, I think this feature should be prioritized because I think it'd be a good feature. Clearly, that's not a way to kind of get your voice heard and be on a, a level. Mm. But if you're coming to me saying, you know, I've done some analysis on our consumers and really this is a, a feature that they're all requesting, then you know, I don't care whether you're the intern or you know, one of my co-founders. You, that's how you kind of create this level, level playing field to have people at all levels in the organization being heard. I was just wondering if there were any particular examples when you think that have been really successful in allowing you to create that space for people. Yeah, I mean, we we the way we we are quite um, structured, I guess, as a startup in terms of how we think about planning the business. And so, if you think we've got this kind of big vision mission of um, making exercise a habit for everybody, that's that's great to have like a, this this. Um, this goal is way, way, way in the distance, but really you've got to start stripping it back. You know, what are we trying to do on an annual basis and what are we doing on a quarterly basis? So every quarter is when we kind of rebase and replan the business. And that's an opportunity for everybody to feed in for the entire organization on what our priority should be for the, for the quarter to ultimately get us to where that, that vision is. And so that's a, that's about breaking, breaking off into different teams, um, looking at their, their kind of bespoke areas of the business and understanding what they're doing well, what they're not doing so well, feeding back the entire organization feeds back in the individual areas. And then we go through that information and data and then prioritize what are we doing for the next quarter. And so it's the kind of those, mm. those quarterly cycles. Um, and it's not to say that once you set those goals for a quarter, um, that they are set in stone. I mean, great. The biggest example will be the current situation that we're in right now. Um, clearly if we just stuck to what our current goals were, we would be uh, missing what is a, a big opportunity for us. So, um, those, those, those quarterly objectives are there to be challenged and challenged in the right, right way. If we feel like we set the wrong goals, but ultimately it gives us a good structure and framework on which to kind of, um, align all the business and what we should should be achieving. Right now, I mean, it is an unbelievable moment in time for you guys as a business, as you know, we are uh, restrained to our homes and all that kind of thing. How have you been able to, I guess the key question is, what would you say that your performance advantage is as an organization? being able to take advantage of these opportunities? Yeah, I think it actually it does relate very much to what Johnny spoke about earlier, which is I think when you work, when you hire the right people into a startup, the number one thing you have to be able to do is, is to embrace change. I mean, the startup journey is a really bumpy roller coaster of incredible highs and unbelievable lows. And mm. you need to make sure that um, you're one of our, our values is kind of having that grit to deliver. And it's all about, embracing embracing the roller coaster and if you have people that have that mindset that it's okay for things to change and it's okay for them what they've been working on really hard for the last you know three months that actually we need to stop doing that right now and move on to something else if you hire the right people in those positions and you you know you're you're um, really meticulously looking at what are the attributes and values of people that you bring into the business you can 
change the course of your business very, very quickly. And that is ultimately a, a big competitive mm. advantage. I mean, most startups try and do that, whether they all do it successfully is, is questionable. But you know, when you compare that to how you know, a big organization trying to, to move a 5,000 person organization around to take advantage of, of the current situation is very difficult. Whereas as startups, you, you kind of have that mentality from the offset. Yeah. And, and it, I guess it's that kind of attitude towards change that is critical, critical to that. And, and what does it take if, if we kind of break it down into a, a team rather than a, a kind of organization or a squad? What does it take between players to be okay with that change? Yeah, I think it comes down to um, con- context, data, analysis, um, you know, just strong justification uh, and evidence as to why you're making that change. If it's just me, me standing up to the company and saying, um, guys, I think we need to change, um, change, change direction because I had a shower this morning and I, I got this incredible idea. You're not going to bring many of your team members with you. But <laughs> I think um, if you can, I think one of, the, one of the things a lot of companies struggle with is that making time to do this in-depth analysis, it's, it, a lot of it runs on guts. And that's when it's very difficult to bring team, team members with you when you're kind of bouncing from left to right, depending on what yeah. somebody's gut is. Mm-hmm. And you need, to, you need to take the time to do the in-depth analysis, bring your team along with you on that journey, get them to feed into that decision-making as well. And not just, yeah, yeah meet you know the, the leader of the team standing up and saying we're going this way because yeah I had a great shower this morning. <laughs> yeah, and and same for you, Johnny. How I mean, you, you were involved in uh, not just kind of individual efforts, but you, you were in a boat with somebody else as well. How were you able to kind of foster that environment and that relationship to really kind of be okay with having those difficult and challenging and sometimes contradictory conversations? Uh, I guess it's. Um it all stems back from, for, for me that everyone needs to be, um, be okay with being wrong. Uh, if everyone in the squads or the team are kind of open to be, to, to put their ideas out there, but also to take on the data, the observation over time and to actually realize that that decision wasn't, wasn't the best one. So everything for me stems up with, a, with an openness to be, uh, sort of non-judgmental and be okay with just getting things wrong sometimes. One of the things that you know we we struggle with, and I think every business I've ever worked in has struggled with, is like a good method for delivering feedback. You know, there's one thing being open to accepting it, but it's got to be done in the right way. And there's a kind of there's this really fine balance between being critical which is not very productive and giving feedback which done in the correct way is really productive thing that every you know you, you can't improve if you're not collecting feedback um but you know naturally as human beings we find it sometimes very difficult to feel like what we did wasn't the right thing so i wondered whether there's any tools that you've used in your career to help deliver feedback in the right way yes i, I think the thing that I've potentially done a bit of un- unconsciously in the past, or it's just worked best when this situation has been there. Um, but it's emphasizing a sort of as close to unconditional um, trust and support as possible first before before delivering the feedback. So it's in simple terms, it's, you know, I've got your back, I'm in your corner. Um, 
and then you might talk about the things you can you can do differently. Myself and Liam, who are in the K2 together, we'd kind of built that up over time. So the underlying assumption was we're both trying our best, both want the boat to go as fast as it can. So anything that we come up with is is kind of delivered with that that aim in mind. Um, more recently in my job up here, I've been trying to make, um, make more of a conscious effort about it because I'm aware that I'm, I'm dealing with people that don't necessarily um, know that I'm kind of supporting them, that I'd be okay for them to to kind of to be wrong that, that I'm kind of open. So if I'm delivering something, it's a genuine um, kind of desire for them just to get better and to get better even when they potentially leave the organisation. We talk about the, the, there's, a, I think there's a book written, I forget the, the name of the author, but it's the, the radical candor approach, which is, which is you've got to care personally to feedback directly. If you don't have the kind of care personally element of it, it's very difficult for the person receiving the feedback to take that on board because they, you know, they're immediately um, feel like it's a criticism and it's it's a it's a it's a tough skill to do to get yeah, as you say build that relationship over time so that they feel like you care about them. So what you're about to tell them is to make them better, not telling them that they're doing a bad job. What you've both articulated really nicely is really the kind of crux of the issue that people have around trust and understanding how to kind of unpick it in a way that you can purposefully demonstrate it when you need to in those sort of situations. And one thing that we we look at is separating it into two areas. So character and competence, competence being what skills and knowledge do you bring? You know, what, what are people's understanding of, of the skills and knowledge that you have so they can trust that you can do your role uh, track record being what have you done in the past and what do they know about your track record that would give them confidence that you can do the role and then the character piece is often where people get a bit unstuck around trust which is really around intent and behavior so what do you perceive someone's intent to be which is really your point Johnny of do you know what they understand your intent to be or are you making assumptions about it and then the final one is behaviors what behaviors do they see from you that back up their intent their perception of your intent um and i think if you can start to understand what others would rate you on in those four areas you can really start to understand what you then need to dial up or down in order to build trust really quickly within a team um and i think certainly from my observation of you and liam um you were both really clear about the skills and knowledge you know the technical ability you were really clear about your track record and, and where you'd come from and you both totally trusted that you were the right team. And your intent was always to give your best performance as a pair and your behaviours back that up. And so the trust was therefore totally explicit and implicit. You know, everyone knew it was there. You guys knew it was there. So all the conversations could then be about your performance and not you as people. <laughs> and that was the differentiating factor that was you know, really almost easy to then be part of because you could join into the performance conversation and it was never perceived as being about you as people. And I don't know if you would reflect on that at all, Dan, in terms of, you know, sometimes I think people within business take it really personally when they get the feedback um, and, and find it difficult to separate their performance with themselves as a person. Oh, I mean, a hundred, hundred percent. I mean, we talk, we talk about it a lot. This is a, a topic of conversation across the business, and we are trying to get a lot, a lot better. I think it's very. 
the easy way out in business is to just to not say anything. Think, oh, you know, I'll, I'll kind of let them get on with it. But that ultimately is what, particularly in early stage business like ours, is, is what kills you. If you're not constantly learning and changing and the, the way you do that is is through getting feedback, then ultimately you, know, you, you won't be around for very long. So <clears throat> it's, it's the, what we've really been working hard to do is is that kind of care personally element. I think you can't, if you don't have that, understanding a relationship of the different team members it's very difficult to do give feedback in a constructive way because it will feel like if i if i've never spoken to a person the team i just go up to them and and say um your your presentation could have been improved by these five reasons if i mean that in itself is a good way to give feedback it's not just saying your presentation was terrible but it has way more of a stronger impact if i've got a good relationship with that person um, uh, and that we've built a level of, of, of trust, as you say, because it, it will be way more valuable to them. And they'll be thinking, oh, Daniel cares about me improving. Um, I'm going to listen and take those on board. Whereas if you don't have that relationship, it's very, it, the, the way that feedback comes across is immediately met with a bit of a barrier, I think. Mm. Can, I, um, can I ask you a question, Dan, about people's perception of you and how that might have changed potentially as the organization's grown and they don't know you personally? But you might see yourself as as Dan, the kind of startup founder. You know your mm. values, what you're trying to do with the company. They just come in and see the position. I guess I'm I'm getting this equivalent. That I'm um, kind of head of performance now, so people see me as that. Uh, I see myself as just someone that loves the sport, that's trying to help and and kind of deliver um, kind of this opportunity for young paddlers. And I think, therefore, they're going to find it really easy to come to me or that if I say something, um, they kind of take it purely on that kind of personal level as, as a paddler that loves their sport. What actually I'm realising does happen is because they perceive you to be in a, in a certain kind of position, um, either within the staff team or, or with kind of athletes, that they don't take the information in the way, way that was intended because they see me differently to how I see myself. A hundred percent. I think as businesses scale, it gets harder and harder. And you, I think the way, I mean, we're not a huge organization now. We're, I think just shy of 50, 50 people, but some quite simple tools that we, well, that I use to try and make sure I've got a relationship with everybody is personally during their onboarding in the company, I will make sure I speak to, to them and tell them a little bit about my role and get them to ask questions about, how the business started, where I see it going, what are the current priorities, so that they, it, we try. I try and have a two-way dialogue that it's not just me presenting to them. Um, and those, yeah. you know, typically that either be one-to-one or maximum one-to-three, so you get to build a bit of a relationship. And then we, I try and have an open and transparent forum, usually once a month or once a quarter, where you know, we have a Q&A session where they can ask me questions and I can give feedback and um and, try, and I, I always try and be open as transparent as possible. You know, everything from I take them through the presentation I um, I took I, I do with the board, and I try and give them as much access to 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 me and what I do as a job as possible, so that you know there's there is that always feeling that that element of trust that he's not trying to hide anything from me. That he's you know I I tell them how much cash is in the bank. All this, all these kind of small, small tools that I use to, yeah. to to help build that 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 trust with me. 
It's about generating that so they can actually empathize with you. Yeah, exactly. They, they know why I'm making certain decisions and all of that comes from transparency. And I've different organizations I've worked in have had different views on that. Whereas you know, there's one view, which is, you know, um, confidence and you're being upbeat is, is really important. Um, but what I find is that if you're hiring smart people, um, they'll figure out when you're, you're BSing and, um, ultimately <laughs> you'll, you'll, you'll lose all of, all of that trust. So for me, it's about yeah. trying to be as open as possible. You know, the, I think the, the cash in the bank one is probably the best example. They know our timelines on how long we've got to live as a, as a, as a business before mm. we raise money or improve performance. So then they empathize with me when I say, right, we've got some tough calls to make here. If I don't give them that access, and I'm a person who just stands up and said, right, we've got to cut back on these things with no kind of context on why I'm making those decisions. It's, it, yeah. it, you know, it, it's, it's very different culture and um, I guess a very different, you know, a way of uh, uh, fostering that, that um, transparency. When you look further up the road, um, for both of you, actually, you know, what, where do you see the, the major barriers or hurdles that you're going to have to overcome in, in order to kind of continue this journey of growth that you're both on? Um, so the, my last startup, Qubit, we grew at its peak was probably just shy of 300 people. And really the, the, the point almost comes about 100 people when all of a sudden you walk around the office and you don't recognize everybody and know them by their first name and can have a, you know, some kind of uh, conversation about what they, you know, you know, you know about them, whether it's their family or what they're into. And so you can have that kind of personal conversation. That's when it starts getting a, a lot harder. And there is definitely a cultural change and shift that needs to happen there. And you need to start thinking about how do you do this at a, at a greater scale? It can't just be the you know, complete one-to-one. You've got to think of, um, you know, as I mentioned before, it, 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 if it's one, one to three, I think you've still got to do the kind of onboarding um piece what's interesting actually at google um actually when i joined i i, I was probably i think it was in the early hundreds in the uk as an organization of about two or three thousand globally but every cv went past the, the founders any every single person that joined google at that time um was approved by by the founders even me that was a you know kind of coming in at the lowest level um hmm. and so that that you know, they really wanted to make sure that they were bringing in, in the right people. And so there's certain things that you, you, you can do at different stages. Um, clearly right now it's about building those one-to-one relationships, but as we get past a hundred people, I will have to use new tools to make sure I'm, I'm mm. keeping that kind of openness and transparency. And same for you, Johnny, as you, um, develop yourself into a, a completely brand new role from sitting in the boat to kind of standing on the side, looking at boats, um, where do you see your biggest challenges? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. I think the biggest challenge um, that we've got is probably one that sport is facing overall, um, kind of globally, but within this country as well, because we've we've always had a very massive shift in the, in the landscape for um, for Olympic sports in particular over the last sort of twenty years or so with. Um, significant amounts of, of funding coming in rapid professionalization if you will of sports that were essentially um, people's hobbies before that what that's kind of meaning is that we're having to learn how to balance 
the overall overall well-being of athletes with performance success measured in, mm. in placings or or medals um trying to make sure that despite a, a program being quite deliberate about one area of its uh, its targets i.e those medals um at the same time being equally deliberate about protecting athlete well-being within that um you know it's not it's not a simple thing uh, kind of making uh, making top athletes is is about putting measured stresses on the body if you want to kind of generalize it it's about training which stresses whatever um facet of sport you're talking about you then recover from that you improve at what you do so we've got to be really careful and deliberate about those stresses but they do need to to be there they could be physical and psychological at the same time we just need to make sure that for all the athletes that come through the program it's a it's a positive experience because it's actually really easy to put stress on an athlete and see who responds well to it and in some countries that has essentially been the structure put enough stress mm. on enough enough athletes they'll come through um i don't think culturally we want to do that here and also for the size of a lot of our sports it wouldn't make sense anyway there aren't, mm. aren't the numbers to be to be doing that with so my challenge is just to make sure we're we're completely on top of that completely deliberate about it um one of my observations from a career um, in a team where we've had some some success uh, again Olympic champions uh, Olympic medals um, we've had way more people come through the programs that I've been on that don't have that to take away with them and that's actually the most likely route in sport for everyone that's doing it um, if we think everything that we're doing is uh, is only worth it for the, for the medal success, mm. we're automatically writing off most people that start taking part in sport. So uh, it's a long-winded answer, but that that rebalancing, it's an uh, easier thing said than done, but it's absolutely something that's the kind of forefront of where I try and take the squads up here. Mm. It, it really springs to mind um, one of our earliest... Um, kind of identifications when we were developing track record, uh, we came across this wonderful paper that, that described a high-performance environment. And it basically seed, said it needed three things in place in order for that environment to flourish, which is incredibly high levels of expectations that were unwavering. So they were kind of written down very clear, but you know, this is the level of expectation that's required, whether that be performance, behavioral, uh, all those things that we've been speaking about, but it needs to be matched by perceived levels of support. So people need to feel like they are supported in order to aspire to that really high level of expectation. And the third leg of the uh, stool um, was around the role modeling of the leadership team. So the leadership team had to be seen to be demonstrating those high levels of expectation and giving and offering that that high level of support and it's something that uh, certainly in uh, my old sport of swimming that we've been battling against and we've written it into our our top line level of our vision which is um one team winning well in water and it really kind of goes to the heart of this is the type of environment that we win and and, and i guess it's very similar to, to your challenge dan around how you're thinking about the environment that you're looking to create when you do get over that 100 people um, mm. line 
and way beyond. How, how can you create, you know, how can you maintain or change or, you know, have the environment that you are looking to create? Yeah, I think we we kind of have, have mapped out how we want to operate as an organization that will, that is, is flexible enough to, to change as we grow and scale. And one thing you just touched on there, um, we, I think no matter what the organization, I'm a big believer in kind of having like dis- disciplined routines and expectations. I think yeah. Yeah, often people think, yeah, I want to work at a startup because I can kind of come and go as I please. And, um, yeah, there's, 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 there's certain things that I think are more pro- applicable to startups than perhaps larger organizations, but it is about having, you know, make doing a lot of the basics really well, like, um, making sure your know, regular all hands communications, to the company trainings, trainings put in place, performance reviews, like all these kind of basics, which I think um, scale with the company. Having a good set of disciplined routines is, is really important. Mm. We talk about you know, the importance of hiring, kind of having world-class players in every single position. And so that that filters down into the way we we, we go through the hiring process. Again, that, that will scale as the business grows. Uh, sticking to our set of core values, which are you know, being a leader, um, always be improving, which relates to the whole feedback element we've discussed, the grit to deliver, yeah. i.e. the embrace the roller coaster um, and always putting the team, the team is greater than the individual. Having that those set of values that we used to hire, fire and promote by, again, those should scale as the business grows. And then something I touched on right at the start, but having this kind of clear structure around how you operate, i.e. you've got your your mission and then you break it down to what we're trying to achieve for the year and then those quarterly objectives and they actually break down again, um, filter down into weekly weekly sprints and having that kind of clear set of structure around how you want to operate as a business allows you to scale. If you're, if you don't have that in place, I think it's very easy as you scale, it's just get the whole thing becomes chaotic and no one really knows what yeah. they're supposed to be doing coming and going. So I think embedding that early, which we've made a conscious decision to do, which does kind of sometimes go against what the people think startups are about, which is like, yeah. you know, everyone's all, all over the place and, you know, they're coming up with creative ideas, but you've got to have that level of structure into the organization because it, scaling will become impossible. Circling back um, to the very beginning of the conversation around definition of winning, um, I suppose, Dan, that links to that as well in terms of a really clear definition of for you as a business, what winning really means, so that irrespective of the scale and and people onboarding, they're very clear around where you're headed. Mm-hmm. Is that something you you very consciously define on behalf of the business? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, the, the vision or the mission we set out about making an exercise habit for everybody is quite measurable for us as you know, we... Um, we can measure when somebody, so yeah, a user joins fit, how frequently they're using the product, do they continue to use it over time? So actually we can very clearly measure whether we are, are we are winning. Um, and that's not, it's, then that's not a um, financial return. That is, are we building a product and brand that is ultimately solving the problem we're, we're trying to achieve? And so yeah, we are constantly looking at, percentage of our users that are active in a given week and how what on average how many classes are they taking those are the ways we kind of kind of measure mm. whether we're winning or not and johnny what if you kind of were to reflect on that sense of 
um, you know, that building a product and brand in order to define winning? How, how do you think you could almost redefine some of that in the world of sport based on the current concept of what winning means? Yes, I guess the piece I was alluding to right at the start about defining winning, the simple terms in our sport is what I just mentioned. So we need to include the opinion that people have of our brand when they leave our programme needs to be strong, needs to be positive, irrelevant of their outcome on the medal chart. And then that's not normally the case. I would say from my observation in, in high-performance sport is that people look more positively or negatively on experience within that team based on the medals or the wins that they've had throughout that time. Also, it comes back to why why do you do what you do as well? So I can imagine if you're on pit, your sort of vision, Dan, to get more people active, there's a, there's a why. You think that's a good thing behind it? Um, we have probably comes back to a very similar why for why high performance sport is a thing to fund but that plays out in if we have athletes coming through our program not necessarily achieving the successes that they wanted but they go out into the world and they take some of those benefits with them i guess just thinking out loud i've got friends who have been through the squad with me that are going out there and retraining as personal trainers and kind of carrying on that loop so making sure they understand the why and we don't take away from their enjoyment of it through the pursuit of high performance mm. medals that's the kind of the brand that we're trying to we're trying to create mm. it's been totally fascinating just to kind of um delve into your, both of your worlds and and again once again just kind of blown away by the the similarities and the crossovers that uh high performers and almost regardless of the sector uh, people are able to identify as as being key critical elements that allow people to be um, successful. And I always like to kind of end on on a question, um, and I'll come to you first, Johnny. Around as a result of this conversation, what's the one thing that's either kind of um, new or being brought to mind, or you've re remembered uh, that's been that, that's really important and you will uh, do something about as a result of this conversation great question i should have been taking better notes as i went because I've, <laughs> I've wanted to grab my pen out a few times but it, for me it was the, the role modeling um of the leadership and it actually that came from from yourself kind of saying you've you've identified that sort of within your within your organization and then um dan kind of mentioned it as well and, and mm. actually it wasn't the necessarily um, kind of role modeling the behaviors you want to see. I was thinking more about actually being conscious about even if you are role modeling them, are people seeing them? So in, in my world, that means I'm maybe a little bit on the shyer end of the spectrum. So I'd quite happily to sometimes work away behind the scenes um, and not, what what I might call sharp about it, but actually there's a real value to being to being visible, to, to being mm. out there. So it was thinking actually for myself and some of my coaches, let's make sure that um where we do live the values we want to see, we actually make sure that they they do get seen. And Dan? I'm always fascinated by this this the discussion around feedback, how feedback's delivered, um, because I find and probably even more so as a culture in the UK that most people are really bad at me, me included. Um, and so it was great listening to Johnny about you know, his relationship building and how that helps him mm. be more constructive and how he delivers feedback. So it's something that I, you know, I, 
I, we do talk about a lot, but I don't think necessarily personally I do a particularly good job of you know really trying to action every week of trying to get to know people better and deliver feedback in the right ways. It's as I said said earlier, I think it's it is one of the most fundamental ways uh, to su- to succeed and create create a competitive advantage is by having really good feedback loops where people embrace that learning they're going to get from feedback and they don't get their backs up and think they're being criticized but it's really really hard thing to do and yeah. you know, i'm constantly you know, we, i constantly talk about it a lot a lot but i don't necessarily uh do it particularly well and yeah come back to my earlier point about you know, your culture is kind of the tone is set by the leaders doing these things well if i talk about it a lot but don't do it myself then no one's gonna you know, really embrace it in the team as well so it's something that i'm definitely going to be focusing a lot more on brilliant awesome so performance uh, advantages have been happening left right and center delighted to hear it um thank you both so much for uh sharing your insights and and ultimately what it's uh taken and will take for you guys to continue to win and, and perform at the incredible levels that you are we both uh wish you the very best of luck in uh, your endeavors and and thank you to the listeners as well for for tuning in and uh, I think you'll agree that that was another um, fascinating insight into what it takes to win. Um, So thank you and look forward to hearing and speaking to you again soon.